Let's face it, running a construction company can be chaotic. As business owners, we wear a lot of hats and we're constantly putting out fires. Luckily, there's a way to work simpler with Build a Trend. I'm a huge advocate for using technology to help run AFT, and Build a Trend is one of the most crucial tools I rely on to keep me on top of every detail. Built just for home builders and remodelers, this is an easy-to-use platform that helps manage all aspects of my business. My team's been using Build-A-Trend's project management platform for the last five years, and we love that they're always improving and adding new features to make our lives easier. This is something that we've really tried to take on internally to find ways to improve our system every day. Build-A-Trend just released a full set of financial services, added new tools like Takeoff to make estimates more accurate, and launched a total rebrand with a new mission to help change the future of construction, and we are on board. To learn more about how Build-A-Trend can help calm the chaos in your construction business, visit buildatrend.com backslash AFT. When you schedule a demo, you'll receive an exclusive 60-day money-back guarantee only available to my podcast listeners. I'm following Build-A-Trend into the future in construction. Come on board with us. Don't miss the Contractors Coalition Summit. You can go to ContractorsCoalitionSummit.com and join us in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Wednesday, May 15th through Sunday, May 19th. This is going to be an incredible event. Again, for all of you builders and designers looking to take your business to the next level to learn about all things, systems, organization, pricing, social media, marketing, how to be a better business owner, all the things that we wish we knew as early business owners many years ago. We're going to speak about that. Also give you a Dropbox with all the content, including contracts and other documents that we're using, as well as KPIs, key performance indicators. So don't miss it. It's a huge opportunity. Some amazing vendors will be there as well that you can network with. So again, Wednesday, May 15th through Sunday, May 19th, 2024 in Minneapolis. Go to ContractorsCoalitionSummit.com. All great processes came from somebody doing something wrong and somebody losing money. (laughs) We've all learned from those mistakes and get better from it. And we're still learning. We, we by no means have it all figured out. We're still implementing, still cleaning up and perfecting what we're doing now. So welcome to the podcast today. We have Steven Sanders Myers on with us. Welcome, Steven. Hey, Brad. Thanks. Excited yeah. to be here. I'm super excited to have Steven on. We've known each other for quite a while through CBUSA, of course. And um, I know you're here recently outside of town. And Steven is, he's estimating purchasing design and sustainability at Brightwater and you guys have quite a footprint doing some amazing things. And um, especially as we've seen the building industry kind of pivot to more sustainable net zero product, which you guys are well ahead of most. Uh, what's driving that? It, it's really been in our DNA from day one. I mean, the, the founder of the company, Charlie Bostwick, believed in it when he founded it. One of our founding principles is sustainability. So it's kind of been their building. I started with them seven years ago, and it, it had been a passion of mine coming into that. So our, our conversation going in was, what can we do to be more sustainable, to build net zero? So it's something that, again, it's it's in our DNA, and we've just incrementally been leading up to full net zero building over the years. How, how does that start? When you say it's in the DNA of the company or you know, the owner, that was kind of his founding principle, and I don't know how how soon um, or how long ago you started the company or he started the company uh, because I've seen social media has been a big driver of this, right? I remember years ago when I graduated from college, everything was green built, you know, for a while there's this kind of green trend and now it's totally pivoted into passive house, net zero, sustainability, carbon footprint, you know, I, I feel like there's a much better understanding of the values most of us are trying to achieve. So, where did that come from? Because I don't think that was common knowledge for most builders that I knew, at least in the networks I was in for, for many years. 
I agree. Yeah, the the more mass media that we're getting towards it is great now. But um, for for Charlie, he founded the company 13 years ago, and it was just it was something that that he's been passionate about for well before that. I think just in wanting to care for the planet, wanting to be responsible with materials we used and the energy efficiency of the homes and all the different elements that go into it. Um, for me, in the, in the similar vein, when I started out building, I wasn't as aware of it you know, 20 years ago, but then I started to go to some of the, the green build conferences and stuff 15 years ago, and it just kind of worked into the, the, the homeopathic lifestyle of, of going to the natur, you know, natural grocery stores and stuff like that, and then you start saying, okay, I love construction and I love the, this kind of granola portion of lifestyle and those tie together and then you start learning about how it applies to construction. Well, let me ask you this because I think where most builders struggle, I mean, one, it's, you know, we'll go down the avenue of what it's like to work with engineers and trade partners, you know, to kind of catch the vision. Some do, some don't. Um, but just from a customer standpoint, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you have to have a customer base. I do, there's clients that we're seeking to work for. There's an inherent cost. And correct me if I'm wrong, at least my experience has been inherent cost when we're doing net zero, more building science product out there, more sustainable product. How have you bridged the gap between client demand and the necessity and the drive that you guys have as one of your core values to build sustainable homes? Sure. So we we believe in it. And so we're going to do it. So we lead by example. When we started out and wanted to take a big step with some of the more cost you know, uh, impacting things like solar and things like that, that are tens of thousands of dollars, we realized if we provide as an option, very small number of our buyers are going to do it because it's still kind of getting more traction as far as prioritization of where money's going to be spent as an option. So we said, we believe in it. We want to build homes this way. So if you buy a Brightwater house, this is what you're getting. So we just put it into the sales price, we market it and we sell it. So it's not an option. It's, it's what we do. Do you feel that's giving you an upper hand? I mean, what does it look like now? Believing in this, you know, 13 years ago to where you are now, and you, I know you've been with the company seven years now, Stephen. What does that process look like now with clients coming in? How familiar are they with you, the brand, the product that you're putting out? Um, do you feel that you're getting a specific client because of that? I can't speak a whole lot to the, like, I guess the marketing and design awareness side of it. Um, I am so much more on the pre-construction side. I hear some of the feedback on the sales side, but not a lot to probably give a, a good answer to that. Uh, I do know that we've greatly been growing our Instagram and our social media around the, the net zero and about the sustainability. So that's something that we're getting a very significant footprint uh, and exposure, you know, just to educate buyers on the front end. So based on, you know, the, the client, like the products that you're doing, are these a lot of clients that own the land that come to you and say, okay, Stephen, we want you to build our house. Are these development projects where you're building a community of a certain amount of net zero product? You know, what does that look like just from a customer standpoint, as far as what the scope of work that you're performing? Yeah, majority of it is our own development. So we really pride ourselves in architecture. It's another, another one of our foundational principles. So with that, we're going to develop the land we're going to control the architecture about how one, how one house speaks to the next house, how it impacts each other, the sight lines. I love seeing solar, but I understand the aesthetic of solar is not for everyone. So we'll design this roof plane so the solar can be facing away from this house, but still get orientation 
to get better generation from the sun. Um, but it, it's something that we're really try to control the, the land on the front end. So if someone brings a lot, we will do it. But the high majority of our stuff is on self-developed lots. And, and because you're self-developing lots, how are you involved at all in the land development or the land acquisition? Or are you strictly now, once the land's acquired, you're working on that kind of funnel of pre-con until you get to vertical? So personally, I work on the pre-con. So we do have, you know, my boss, Joel Ferguson, he works on the development side. So we're acquiring the land. We're seeing it all the way from a, a track of woods to take as few trees down as, as necessary to get in our roads and then we'll we'll site clear per house are you guys working with any like mass developers in the area because if my understanding is correct you're in south carolina right you're in georgia and so i know throughout the u.s there are mass developers will come in and you'll buy maybe 30 lots but you're looking at raw land and you're doing all the horizontals and development you know curb and gutter all the way through the community correct correct yeah so we work we work with more regional local development companies and then you know they'll be the gc you know, we're, we're the GC, then they're the kind of development GC, and then take it from there. Now, we do work in a couple of master plan communities, um, Serenby. Uh, we, we bought some lots in Charleston or in Johns Island that were developed about 10 years ago. So we will pick up some that were previously developed, but again, a majority is our own. And, you know, a lot of people often ask, I mean, there's not really a percentage. I know you're pretty heavily in estimating. Um, is there... You know, if you were to go build a similar product, so as you look at design and some of your similar builds, from there to net zero, is there a delta? Is there a ballpark? Is there a cost difference? You know, rough rough budget for those thinking about, okay, I'm going to pay this price, but you know, or, or this upgrade percentage, but but here's the benefit of it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've I've done pretty deep cost analysis on it. Right now, the numbers right around fifty thousand that we're seeing for, you know, say a thirty five hundred square foot you know, basement, two-story home. So you're only saying 50 grand more based on the volume and expertise that, that you that, have. That's, that's per house, yeah, and a majority of that's yeah. solar. So you've got maybe 15 to 20,000 in energy efficiency and envelope and things like that, and then, you know, 30 or so in the solar array. So our investment in the home, you know, is in that range, and then obviously we're adjusting the purchase price to account for that. but. To the end user, their cost impact on a monthly basis, if if they're getting a mortgage, is virtually nil because the added cost that they're paying for the house increases their mortgage X amount, but they're reducing their utility bills by three or four hundred dollars or whatever the number is a month that offsets that. So the end user doesn't really see any added monthly cost, and they're getting a better built house that's going to perform for them, and then you know, eight years or something down the road, that payback pays off and then it's all benefit. And, and I think that's important because I, you know, starting this conversation, maybe I should have let off with this. I, I would imagine that most of our listeners that, that tune in have a pretty clear understanding of what net zero is in state sustainable homes. Sure. Some may not. So maybe walk through just at the core, essentially what net zero is and, you know, how sustainable, sustainability plays a role in that. Sure. So, so we do net zero energy and we, we make sure to emphasize energy. There's a lot of stuff now about net zero carbon and, and different paths. So we do net zero energy. So we design our homes. If you're familiar with the HERS score, H-E-R-S, that's home energy rating score. That is the, the efficiency of the home about how much energy it needs to run all the systems in that home based on an average number of individuals living there, 
over you know average weather patterns for the market that you're in and it all goes into a, a computer algorithm it spits out your her score um we we engineer our homes so that we get that number down without solar to sub 50 we're in the you know low 40s range 42 to 45 and then we generate the additional energy that we need to bring that down to zero so we're generating everything that we need for that house on site so it is net zero and and so in other words you know for those listening and and there's there's also from net zero energy there's also like net zero daily net zero yearly right so depending on ebbs and flows but essentially over the year you're going to produce as much energy as you consume or essentially that her score you're getting down to zero with the added element of solar correct and we look at it at an annual basis so our, Mm -hmm. our energy modeling that we do looks at it over the seasonal you know path we're in atlanta and charleston so we get all four seasons um but it's it's based on an annual model and we do work with the emc so we are not off the grid we're not relying on batteries so it's something where we over generate during the day to build up credit with the emc and then we essentially buy the power back that we generated at night so it's it's kind of a give and take so you know, for those listening, if, you know, if you're a normal consumer, maybe a builder and you're like, okay, I, I, you know, there's some elements in my home. I'm building a good home. My builder for me is building a go home. How can I, what are some elements that they should look at when you're looking at to get a her score down to 40 without solar, let's say, what are sure. some of the aspects that you're looking at, Stephen, in design? Is it windows? Is it foundation, you know, insulation? What are some of the key components that you're really targeting to keep the cost fairly competitive? Um, but still hit that, that hers rating at the end goal. Yeah. I'd say start with your envelope, start with making your home, uh, as tight as possible. So if you, if you want to go back, I guess you could go back further from that and look at architectural design of window placement and size of windows and so on. But let's say the house, you already have a house plan sited on a lot. So then you're looking at vertical, vertical construction. Um, look at your envelope. How can you make the home tighter? minimize penetrations through your walls and your roof. Um, and then those that are going through are, are being properly sealed. Um, use some advanced framing. So you minimize your thermal bridging and you get a, a better total R value on your wall. You, we hear about R value a lot and that's your insulation that's stud to stud. But if you have a wall that's got a ton of studs in it, majority of that wall is going to be the wood that's a lot of thermal bridging and minimal insulation so your total r value of that wall is is much less than your code minimum of r13 or whatever the code minimum is in in your market so when you can do advanced framing it allows you to increase that which then helps that envelope and and explain a little bit more about thermal bridging you know for those that may not be you know super familiar with that term yeah so thermal bridging you have heat outside heat or cold outside and it's it's going through the elements into the house so your air is on either side and it's something that you you have to break that as it transfers through the wall so if it's something where you have a stud and you have drywall and you have your your sheathing that hot air is just going to travel through that if it's something where you break it through insulation it's going through and it stops that so either through a continuous insulation board on the outside doesn't allow that to travel through the wood all the way or we employ a staggered stud method. So we have our studs kind of staggered on a plate so our insulation can weave in and out of it so you don't have any wood that's touching both the inside air and the outside air. So thermal bridging is stopping that from transferring directly through the wall. 
And that's a great explanation. And essentially, Stephen, it's when whether it's wood or steel, you know, metal, you know, if that if that heat or cold can transfer through and bridge through, then that's what's, you know, hurting the energy loss right in the home or energy gain if you will especially in the summer where i live in phoenix and i know you in atlanta it can be a little warm in the summer so you have to be cautious with that um how important and and as you alluded to this that it's a little tough when you have a design already completed um but if you have the opportunity to start from scratch how important is window placement facing south facing west you know window sizes how can that play a role in in the energy efficiency it's extreme so, I mean, the reason that the envelope is so important is because your biggest energy hog is your HVAC. The, the window design plays a lot into that. So if you have a bunch of windows on the south facing, you know, the south facing wall of the house, all that extra heat is coming in. You might need a full extra ton of HVAC or the HVAC that you do have is just going to have to work that much harder to condition that space. So it, yeah, it, it's a massive impact where you put them and then the size that you put them or you do put them there, then you're having to use a, you know, a higher level or different lens or filters on the glass to provide shading from that. And you're right. I mean, HVAC, at least for us, that's the biggest draw whenever we're, you know, sizing panels, that's going to be the biggest element. Number two is the pool system. How often are you guys doing swimming pools? And when you do that, how does that factor into the Hearst score and especially the net zero rating? Gotcha. So we, we do very few pools. We, we've done a couple, but that's something that, that we just we're uh we're a home builder not a pool builder and we found it in that we found it we're really good at homes not great at pools so we we let buyers do that post construction so again as you're looking at the rating just to be open i mean again this is house sufficient so you're looking at the mechanical design electrical load anything going into the home that you're building the client does a pool may offset it but again you know they're running their pool pumps and filters certain amounts so we're not talking major dollars in the end that's right. That's right. I mean, we, we do energy modeling, including one EV charger and obviously all of our systems. And then, like I said, you know, there, there's there's averages that they, they put into play for consumption based on your end user, you know, X number of devices being plugged in and so on. But yeah, if you sell a five bedroom house and 12 people are living there and they're home all day long, they're going to way max out max that system. So right. there's there's real life situations. They're going to ebb and flow with that. There's best practice and reality, right? That's Just with anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the at the core of it, I know you you touched on this too. I know you're not involved in the sales process, but you kind of have, um, you know, a double approach here in the sense that you have one aspect where if you're building a sustainable net zero home, you're advertising to the client that cares about that, that's passionate about, you know, the climate or the industry or whatever it may be. So that's one aspect. Number two is you allude to this. You you had said that you're probably fifty grand more for the house, but with energy savings at offset. So you may have some that just says, look, I, I'm okay, you know, spending a little bit more upfront, but I know that, you know, seven, eight years down the road, that payoff begins. And then, you know, I'm on the flip side and you and I both know that in our markets where there's a ton of growth, um, you know, the grid needs a lot of maintenance and energy costs have risen. I don't, I don't know of any costs that's dropped in, in that's quite right. some time, especially energy. That's right. Agreed. And so, yeah. So how does that play a role with, um, forecasting just for um you know clients that may come in even though you're not a sales process but i'd imagine you know as as you speak with other departments of the company um do you feel that's given an upper edge why they're coming to um to brightwater yeah i think it does separate us out i mean 
we, we were not necessarily doing it to separate ourselves out. We believe in it and we believe that all homes should, we, should be built this way. And we see how, how's a home going to impact our planet and our community and the people that are living in it 20, 30, 50 years from now. So we want to build with that in mind and, and be an example for other builders. But it is not caught on on you know, with many other builders in our in our market to date. So it is separating us out. Uh, I, I can't say that a lot of buyers are looking for those elements specifically, but it's absolutely a plus that, that they're getting when they walk in and they get the education and the excitement from our sales teams around what we're doing. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects so for anyone any scale any size they're the ones to call they're here local you know they have an amazing instagram make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing so if you need windows and doors give sammy and adam a call we stand behind pella we love what they do their culture their brand and especially their quality and if you want to learn more about pella windows check our show notes we'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out how's it been for you especially being involved in pre-con so you're 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 heavily involved in the estimating and purchasing so you're negotiating with your suppliers with your trade partners what how does that look like today as opposed to seven years ago when you joined the company you know getting them on the same page and understanding kind of the goal here sure there was uh there's a lot more reliance on historical data back then. You could you could like look at you know two to three years of of bills and payment and POs and say okay that's a good average we can use that to estimate the next one coming up. I, I think 2020 and 21 blew all historical data out of the record like you, out of the water. You can't refer to any of that now. Um, so I would say a much more uh, acute focus on on each project and each. You know each vendor relationship and each unit rate so while 2023 has plateaued thankfully a little bit of a breath here from a cost perspective we're still hyper focused on on each number and each relationship to manage it where it is uh, and each new job that we're estimating we really have to kind of scrutinize that we're looking at that because we, you know, we don't want to use escalation clauses we want to you know be as accurate as we can with that uh, so without the historical to, to lean on, there's just a lot more upfront focus. So with that, I, I, you know, it sounds like in the past you internally could do your own takeoffs, your own quantities, have a good understanding of what that forecast. How much stuff are you hard bidding now and involving your, your trade partners? Probably about 50-50. You know, like the, the mechanical trades, um, some of the more specific finishes, we will will allow them to bid on. Uh, but then I have a purchasing agent in office, so he's doing, he's using the Builder Trend takeoff, and we're utilizing that through our purchase order system to release POs just based on 
pre-negotiated unit rates. And then um, what about, you know, it's one thing to deal with the, the pricing aspect of it. What about the education side? So it's one thing for maybe their office to bid, you know, to the spec, but it's another thing to have the installer install it right. Because you mentioned early on the penetrations have a big part of that, you know, through right. roof and wall assemblies. And I know when we were building our net zero, that was a challenge is, is getting our trade base to understand the goal and the installation method. And because they want to work on historical data too, right? This is what I've known. Right. This is the way I do it. And now you're essentially retraining someone how to ride a bike, you know, and do something totally different. That's been the biggest challenge of this for me. Like, I, I love when things are done correctly and I love providing data and, and, and building that out. And then when someone either doesn't care as much about it or isn't as aware about it and then doesn't necessarily pick that up, it's it's difficult. And that's definitely something we run into, especially with the labor pool right now, construction. There's a lot more green laborers as far as like new and younger and, and less aware. So they're going off what they've seen, they're, you know, the, the older generation that has taught them to do. And it's not green building. It's not the net zero methodology that we're trying to get them to do. So it's constant education with them, um, getting out and working with our builders, our site supers, our trade partners, and just it's co continual education. How does that impact the culture of your firm, you know, from from your firm to the trade partners, the education, the, you know, the continual training, you know, how have you bridged that gap just, you know, building the relationship there? It, it's been a cool part of it. I mean, we, it's something that we can really rally around since we made the announcement, Charlie, our owner made the announcement in beginning of 22, that that was a vision that we would go fully net zero. So while we had done a lot of sustainable things at that point, it was like, go all in. So at that point, there, there became a, more of a buzz internally. And now we, we do more stuff where we'll get our whole team involved in, in being aware of it. Uh, we'll, we've held an event where we'll have everyone out, trades and internally, to see the elements that we're doing and at different stages of construction uh, to help with awareness and to build that culture around it. And, and you feel, I know there's been a challenge as you alluded to, because you're like me, where some of the partners, you know, that you're hiring trade partners out there, they may have some really green labor inexperience, you know, especially with net zero product. Um, what, what, what's that been like, just the engagement and commitment? Because one thing that I often hear from other builders is that it's hard enough to build a home and get traces show up and perform their scope of work. Right. And then when you add in the complexity to do something new and different and sustainable, you know, that's where it becomes really heavy lifting for you as the management team. Yeah. It's slow. <laughs> it's slow. It's, it's go and walk through and provide documentation and instruction and go back and check on that. Maybe it wasn't done correctly or partially done. And then, just reinforce that and go over and over, you know, repetition. So I, I know this falls more into your lap, if you will, is that the document control is one of the most difficult aspects of any business, right? And as you talk about companies, as they're building their systems and efficiencies and protocol, document control is really important to make sure you're building off the accurate set, the, right. you know, the most updated red line set. What, what technology or how are you organizing your documents? Sure. So everything in the field is builder trends. So we use Dropbox kind of back of house for, for archive, but we, we communicate with our, our field team and our subcontractors 
everything that they find in builder trend is what they can have confidence to build in the field. So as, as part of pre-con architecture, design, purchasing, we are being very diligent to make sure that everything that's getting loaded in there is current, is accurate, and, you know, is what the field team needs to be supported with. So if I understand correctly, at pre-construction and estimating and purchasing, everything's run through Dropbox between the parties. The minute that that project goes live, you're uploading the most current documentation into Builder Trend. Yeah, that's accurate. On, on the plan side, so we use the, the files and the documents folder. So yeah, we get a complete plan set that's going there. We get structures, we get trusses, and that, that's going in there. The PO package and the selections are kind of getting populated as they get completed during the, our you know, two to three month pre-con process. And how does design work? Is that something that you're managing yourself? Are you working with outside firms? So we have, a, we have an internal lead designer, and then she will work depending on bandwidth and volume She'll take it on or we'll work with some third party, again, as we need. I, I am not a designer, so do not ask me what, <laughs> we'll call her something. <laughs> yeah, but I manage the process of it. I'm very much about you know the process and logistics side of it. Um, we, we're focused much more on, on curated, where we, we want to, one, not start any home, pass slab until we have complete selections done on it. So whether it's a market home or it's a pre-sale, it's something that we're working to kind of present to our buyers. Here's the design package that we have for you. So rather than taking them through, okay, pick from one of these five Cambry samples, we get to know our buyers and tell them, we know you're gonna love, you know, Britannica Warm, this is your countertop. And do that for the entire package and present it to them. It's really smart. So essentially because uh, decisions can take a lot of time. They, and, and I think this was a, the, the one part of our business. Um, and I don't know how it was for you early in your career, Stephen, but I can say from my side is you're a little bit more lax. I was right with decisions and, you know, product selection and, you know, we're an anxious and the client is too, to get the project started. You want to get shovel on the ground and then you have all these delays and stopping points and decisions and, it becomes extremely frustrating and tiresome and delays construction. And so then we get to a point probably like you where now we won't even do a project without a designer. And honestly, like we really don't even want to start the project until everything's decided. It's kind of double, you know, two sided that we have the designer and it's all selected. And because otherwise it's really hard to be successful. I know for you in purchasing to the field team, you know, to hit timelines and deadlines and keep a client happy. That's right. Yeah, all great processes came from somebody doing something wrong and somebody losing money. <laughs> so that's uh, we we've all learned from those mistakes, and that we we build what we have and get better from it. And we're still learning. We we by no means have it all figured out. We're still still implementing, still you know cleaning up and perfecting what we're doing now. So so again, you're always going to have a designer, whether it's in house or third party. You do Absolutely. both. Yeah. Um, what about the flexibility? Because most of the time you, you acquire the land and you're doing the build. Um, and, and you spoke about this a little bit with the Cambria example, you know, the Britannica Warm. From an option selection, that's where it could be tough. If they have the open slate to pick anything they want, it, again, that design process could take months upon months. How do you kind of, you know, keep them um, all together in that decision sure. process with so many options out there? Well, we, we don't sell ourselves as a custom builder. So we're not saying you could pick whatever you want. 
we we I have done a, a really you know deep dive into finding products that if we don't if you don't do any upgrades on our home, just our standard basic offerings are going to build a really well designed interior because we have high level fin high level finishes with really great manufacturing partners that that we use as standard. So we kind of take those sandboxes and then curate a package for our buyers inside of those already established relationships. Now, granted, sometimes someone will send us a picture and say, I really want this, you know, out of control faucet, right? You know, whatever it is. So we'll go source it and we'll get it, but that's really an exception. But on the sustainability side, while we're not net zero carbon, that's something that plays into, we really focus on trying to get stuff domestically, regionally, so that we're not using as much carbon to get materials to our job site to do the manufacturing. So we try not to get stuff from overseas. We try not to get stuff from even from, you know, from West Coast as, as it is. There's a lot of great products that are manufactured in the state of Georgia and in the Southeast. And we try to lean heavily on that. Yeah, and I think that's really important because part of the sustainability of the carbon side, there is a lot of value to sourcing locally, you know, less freight. I, you know, it also helps you just from a building aspect to have product a little bit more accessible, readily available. You're not waiting on long freight times and overseas and could be stuck in the port. I mean, who knows okay. what could happen okay. with some of those products. So, um, you know, going back to the solar aspect too, the, it sounds like the clients have different packages. How do they have levels of solar just like other options of the house, you know, and depending on how much solar they want, you know, price point they're willing to be comfortable with? No, because because we're net zero, we're doing energy modeling up front. So we, again, plug it into the system with our energy rater to know how much solar that house needs. And then we'll design the system to get us to that net zero. So if it needs 10 kWh, if it needs 11 and a half kWh, whatever that is, we'll design the system and put it on accordingly. Um, now, if the buyer comes in and says, hey, we want it, we know we're going to add a pool, we know we're going to add this, we want to add solar for it, we, we will do that. We've done that some. Um, and then we do have some battery systems. So if they want to come in and, you know, and add, a, add a power wall or an in-phase or a Generac or something, we'll, we'll put that in for them. That's a great point because I was going to ask that because I'd imagine if you're giving them a 10 or 11 kilowatt system, right, they may come in and, you know, to your point, do a pool later. You know, maybe they have two electric vehicles. You mentioned you already planned for one, but they may have two. And so you're given the option to upgrade or upsize as well as do battery backup, whether it's, you know, Tesla power walls or Generac. I mean, so they have some options there to increase it, just not eliminate it entirely. That's right. That's right. You can't go below the baseline. You can just do better. <laughs> Which is good. I mean, it's you yeah. have to have those values and standards, right? And essentially, you're the guide, right? You're the guy that's got in the client, and you have to get that education while you're doing, you know, performing to this um, to this level that you are. Yeah. So from um, an engineer side, what does that look like now? I mean, I, I would imagine that having done so many homes, especially with this being a standard, your engineers and architects. Um, are pretty dialed in. What was that like in the early beginnings though, getting them to comply and understand advanced framing and thermal bridging and some of these items that they may have not looked, you know, heavily at in the past? We're still in the early days. <laughs> We're still <laughs> early on. Um, no, it, it's, it's, it's finding the advanced framing that we think can work or we'll see something at IBS or we'll see some product and say, that's really cool, this could work. 
Now we don't need a structural engineering plan for all of ours, but definitely on our coastal region that really comes into play. So it's it's sitting down with our structural engineers, sitting down with our our you know our HVAC calculations and walking them through what we want to achieve, and then they come back with it and just kind of give and take. So we have a great architecture team, so they're their eyes wide open to receive that and then implement into the plans. That that's a very interesting point because even that you, even though you've been doing this for thirteen years as a company and you doing it for seven, Stephen, you're still pushing the envelope with new product, new technology, going to the builder show. And so you, you continue to push elements. So there's this give and take where you're working with engineers saying, is this applic- applicable? Will this work? And yeah. still pushing the limit on, on different ways to build more effectively and efficiently. That's right. That's right. Even most recently, we're residential construction, you usually have your plan set and then you just cut your plumber, electrician and HVAC loose in the field, do what they do. We're, we're getting HVAC plans. So we know our ducts are going to run before we start framing the house. So we can do all that on the front side because you think, oh, it's just ducts. It's no big deal. It's all inside the envelope. So what? If, if you have a duct that runs, it could run right here, but instead your guy takes it all the way around. You've got 30 extra foot and four elbows. Your system has to work harder. The air is going to be less con, you know, conditioned as it pushes through that. So it's going to take more energy. Efficient runs less efficient. I mean, the system runs less efficient. It, it's just the, the trickle kind of down effect of that, where if we can be more intentional and know how we're going to build, we avoid the field having to make pivots and fixes that usually aren't the best for the end result. Uh, and then end of the day, it's better for whoever's going to live in the house. They're going to have a better, more efficient home. So are you doing any like BIM modeling? Because I'd imagine as you have new models and new floor plans, there is complexity with, you know, mechanical duct layouts, HVAC, as opposed to trusses and, you know, the coordination between the two. That's right. So that that's kind of where we're growing into. We, we've been talking to MyTech and, and BFS and some of the, the programs that they have that can integrate also. We, we use Revit as on our architectural side. So the tools are there. It's just, it's getting the truss designs, the HVAC designs, the EWP, all into a, a single program so that we can see them all playing together. So right now it's more like we're, we're getting the three documents and then just comparing them to see where there's a conflict. But that's, that's next. That's probably 2024. We'll get through that one, like get it all in the same place. Well, it would be nice. How, how complex is it, the different, you know, areas from building in Charleston and South Carolina as opposed to Georgia? Yeah, uh, I mean, from a structural side, you've you've got shear walls, you have impact windows you have to deal with, um, a lot more strapping, a lot more bracing. It's it's a much more robust kind of shell that you have to do compared to Atlanta. Outside of that, everything else is just is just construction from a material standpoint. Um, The the labor side is is brutal. There's just there's not as much labor there, so I might I might pay two to three times in Charleston what I would for the same work in Atlanta. It's interesting, and that you know a lot of people ask why pricing isn't the same throughout region, and there's a lot of factors, right, from cost of land and labor, and you know so many different taxes in each state. Um, How how tough is it for you if you're doing the estimating and bidding, being based in the Georgia office, you know, bidding out in South Carolina? to find new trades, new vendors, you know, that can service you there? It's, it definitely has its challenges. Now we've got a great 
team in the field. We run all of our operations at Precon out of our office in Atlanta, but our field team on the ground has established relationships. So that, that's kind of a, a step in, which is great. Uh, and then obviously we're, we're part of the CBUSA network. So knowing builders that are on the ground really allows us to kind of ping them to say, who are some local vendors that maybe we're not working with that we need to. Um, and then there's just the extra investment from you know myself and my team getting in market. I'm in South Carolina right now. Uh, just I get down here. We have someone here every month, just meeting with the team and meeting with vendors as needed. So kind of long answer, but it's it definitely has its hurdles but having an established footprint really helps. So I guess maybe we'll go back to CBUSA because I know you and I know each other from CBUSA, you know, pretty extensively and you're wearing your CBUSA uh, <laughs> blazer right now. Yeah, your, your hoodie there. So um, how long have you been a member of CBUSA? Why did you join? Sure, so four, we've been four years. Um, I was with the builder, one of the original Atlanta CBUSA builders 2008, I, I did some independent contracting for him. I knew what it was just hearing about it. I wasn't involved at all. Then I ran into Bill Smithers at 2019 IBS and saw the, the, the CBUSA t uh, table and remembered like, hey, this is this would be great for Brightwater. And so sat down with he and Phil Randolph and it was, uh, man, such a great fit. And it has been just invaluable the past four years and all that it's, it's added to, to what we do. So is that changing just for a little perspective? You know, CBUSA does have a lot of partnerships with suppliers and vendors. It helps us with not only securing product, but price locking, you know, so we don't have a ton of price jumps. And, you know, there, there's other benefits of camaraderie, as you mentioned, you know, networking with other builders. Um, joining four years ago and being at the Company 7, how did that change from a vendor list, you know, vendors you were working with to now working, I would imagine, with a lot of the CBUSA vendors? Sure. It's, uh, you know, so going in, we, we have a lot of historical relationships, you know, for the first 10 years of the company. And then through COVID, you know, the past four years, it's, it's been such a unique in, you know, industry. We've had quite a few vendors kind of drop off. And so we've had to replace those. So it's been either finding someone who, who got in touch with CBUSA and then came in from that side, or it's us finding a new one and then bringing them in to CBUSA to be able to serve our entire network. So it's kind of worked from both sides, us um, you know, being able to have that like instant access to some quality trades, and then also being able to have a good carrot if we need to bring someone in a less competitive market in 2020 and 2021 to bring someone in. Yeah, it's really important. And, and CBOSA, it sounds like, because you mentioned just with the trade base, how adaptive have trades been to you know, share or, or general contractors been to share some of the trades because sometimes a lot of us keep those trades close to the best. Um, yeah. Some of us have the mentality to realize, hey, I have some good companies and I can't keep them totally busy all by myself. And so they need to work with other good builders. You know, how's that relationship been as you've essentially gone into a market where you're competing against, you know, to some extent, maybe some other GCs and then being, you know, a little amicable to share some of those subs? Yeah. So, I mean, both our Atlanta and our Charleston groups are great. We've got such a great group of guys. I, I would say specifically in Atlanta, man, we're wide open. We're on our email multiple times a week, just sharing a vendor, talking somebody up, talking somebody down. Um, it, it's it's a great resource, and we're okay sharing it. Atlanta is a massive market, and while, yes, we do compete with each other, 
and and yeah, there's there's the, probably the one or two trades that were like, you know what, I'm not going to share that one just because <laughs> <laughs> one, I know they they can't take they can't do the volume. I mean, yeah, I, my my communication with vendors about CBUSA is the only reason that I bring them up is if it's a win-win, if it's going to benefit me because it's going to benefit them to have a sustained volume with good builders. I'm totally fine sharing them. Yeah, and that part's tough. I mean, you know your vendors, you know your trade partners, you know if they have the capability to go, to really ramp up and serve other builders if they're barely getting by servicing you. That's right. Yep. So how, what does the market look like right now um, in Georgia and South Carolina? We're good. I mean, we, we're really we're really grateful to be in, in two markets that continue. The, the governments are doing a great job, continue to bring in industry, and a lot of people are moving here. So... We're, we're way behind on inventory, so construction continues. I mean, our, our price point at you know 1.5 average you know, is is something that is holding steady. So I would say traffic. I, again, I'm not really informed on that side. I don't look at those numbers much. I think our traffic has come down some, but it's a lot more qualified people coming in, a lot more cash buyers, and our homes are, are continuing to move. So it sounds like even at a higher price point. And despite interest rates that things seem to be somewhat healthy, you have a backlog, you still have a demand for the product that you're building. That's right. That's right. It's and interesting. We, oh, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, just, you know, we build specular, maybe 50-50, you know, speculative homes versus what we call the market homes versus pre-sold. We didn't, have not been able to finish a home since the COVID rush of, you know, May 2020 started until just, just this past summer, we were finally able to finish a house, get it through CO before it sold. So it's something that, you know, that, that kind of is telltale to the market that we, we've not been able to keep up with the pace at that level. And then when it was on the market, how long was it on? So, well, we don't have, we have one in Palmetto Bluff currently. Outside of that, we don't have anything on the, the finished on the market. So again, there's still demand. And, you know, I will say that even in healthy markets, not every builder has product, especially in the $1.5 million range, you know, even in the high sevens, eights where products for a lot isn't moving as fast. And so it's a testament to the vision and goals that you're doing to put a product that's not only a great product with a lot of upgrades and a good home in itself, but also the building science element, you know, has created a demand there. Yeah, agreed. So what keeps you up at night? I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say nothing. <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm I'm a Christian, and I have so much peace in my life just in 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 that in that relationship. And while business has its stresses, and and I understand that those are there, I I work really hard. I really apply myself. Uh, I've got a great family, a great wife, and I hit the bed 10, 30, 11, up at five, and ready to do it again. That's amazing. So what does a typical day look like for you? So um, my wife's nickname for me is Logica because it's very technical, very robotic. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm up, I'll get the workout. You know, I, I've recently joined F3, so that's been a fun new kind of uh, type of workout. Um, but get some kind of workout in the morning, get to the office, go through it or I've been all over, you know, here recently, South Carolina, and I've been doing some other regional trips. Get through it, 
get back home in the evening and then weekends are our family and church. That's amazing. So what do you do for fun? Let's see. Disc golf is, is kind of my one hobby. I'll play basketball when I can, but I get hurt a lot less playing disc golf. <laughs> so that, and then we don't, we don't have kids, but we got a bunch of nieces and nephews, so we will get them as much as we can. And I just, we, we love playing, playing with the kids, being aunt and uncle of the year. That's awesome. And uncle of the year, everyone needs to get aunt and uncle, you know, it yeah. takes a village as they say. So I, I know for me as a kid, you know, it's fun to have some good aunts and uncles around to support us. And, uh, what about uh, best advice you've been given? Best advice. That's a, that's a good question. I, I would say, so going back before I was in construction, I, I was a manager at Chick-fil-A, like high school, college years. And my manager then, or the owner of the, the Chick-fil-A then said, MBWA, manage by walking around. You know, basically seeing how people are, you know, where individuals are. So fast forward to today, and I don't remember where I heard it first, but seek first to understand. That that phrase, seek first to understand, has been really impactful in, in the net zero approach, in, in family, in all, all aspects of, we're all coming from different places. And while I may be completely sure that I'm right about something, someone else is coming at it from a different lens. So me seeking first and asking the question to know where they're coming, they're coming from allows me to have perspective to, to connect with them. You know, asking question build, builds rapport and it builds confidence in that person to share. And then we can con, come to hopefully a mutual understanding if there is a right and wrong. I mean, there's plenty of black and white, but there's plenty of gray. Um, so I, I'd say seek first to understand is a big one right now. I like that there is a lot of value to asking questions and, you know, being curious, right? That, you know, a friend of mine, Mark Williams, who's on the podcast that started his own in Minnesota, he calls himself the curious builder, but there's a lot of value to asking questions because, you know, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, most of the protocol or operating procedures that I have that many of us have come from mistakes. And in a perfect world, we'd ask enough questions and network and have, you know, go to CBSA and, be part of the building community to ask other builders, say, okay, Stephen, how have you dealt with this? What mistakes have you made? And then ideally not have to make those to learn ourselves. You know, we can learn from others. That's right. That's right. Well, we were noticing some, some breakdowns in communication internally and uh, our owner and COO took the whole company beginning of this year on like an education retreat. So have you heard of the book, Crucial Conversations? Yes, I have. So we, we had a Crucial Conversations trainer come in and take our whole company through like an intensive evening and then all next day deep dive into that book and the workbooks so we were doing breakout sessions we were doing role playing and it was it was so great just to kind of we and our, our whole company read that book together over a couple of months um but the the, the elements in that and seek first to understand probably came out of that it's it's really embedded in, in that thinking of you know we, we are there's a you know the pool shared meaning there's something that that we all can can learn from each other and having that openness and now that we have that it's like we had that tool to have that crucial conversation we all know and have that expectation that we're looking at each other through that lens so it's really opened up what was already great culture in our office to to even better culture and the potential to to grow into more 
It's amazing because anytime a company wants to do something like that, there there is a big investment. There's a major expense to do that, you know, not only from time off work, but getting everyone there. How did that, you know, impact the culture and just teamwork there? It was great. We, we picked an offsite location a couple hours away. So in Greenville, South Carolina. So it's a couple hours from our Charleston team and Atlanta team. And we, we got some buses and took everybody out. And, you know, we started at a brewery and just got the conversation going. And it was it was intense and there was a lot of emotion. I mean, it was it was some like heady stuff. I remember just being completely wiped emotionally from the conversations that were had. But we had such a blast about it. There, there might have been some karaoke. That was just, you know, it was like really, really cool time around it. Kind of play hard, study, work hard. Work hard, play hard, right? That's, that's the key that's to right. a lot of success for those around us. So for those listening, what do you have that's upcoming and exciting? I'd say more net zero. We've got two great new developments coming up that are going to be all net zero. And our, our architecture has been inspirational and the new stuff's coming out. I've been building for 20 years and I've not seen as creative plans as I've seen from some of the concepts coming out. So I'm really excited to try to get these things accurately purchased <laughs> and uh, <laughs> get them built. They're going to be great. Uh, and then big picture, I'd say microgrids. You want to look, uh, if I had to be willing to bet, 10 years from now, microgrids are going to be the craze. Just from, if you look at a national level of where we're at on an energy grid, having a community that is kind of self-sustained as a microgrid to help the major grid, but to be able to stand alone. There's a few in, in the country right now that are really performing well. So I, I see us doing one in the next two or three years. So, so how, how, how does that work for you as a builder to go do the microgrid? So you really have to start at the development side because you're, you're putting in additional infrastructure uh, to, you have to have a switch essentially to separate it from the major grid. So you're not backfeeding the grid, but then you're doing obviously your generation in our case is solar. And then you're doing a battery system on every house and they speak to each other. So if you've got 50 homes or 20 homes or whatever, all those batteries are storing energy. And then maybe you have a, an additional battery pack that is a community battery that is, is filled up. It's cycling. That's for the community. So if you have a major storm come through the big story, there's, there's one in Tampa when that storm hit in the past year, knocked out, the whole region, but you have this community here that's fully generated because it's a microgrid. So that switch throws your off connection with the major grid and then everybody's running off each other's power and the community power for, you know, however long you, you've designed the system to run, if it's 48 hours, 72 hours. And then if you wanted to, you could do a, you know, a natural gas or some kind of generator to keep that going, you know, for extended periods. That's incredible. That's amazing. Well, Stephen, yeah. I can't can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your expertise and everything that you, that you guys are doing at Brightwater. And uh, for those listening, where can they find you? Thanks, Brad. Uh, let's see. We're on LinkedIn, so Brightwater Homes at Brightwater Homes. Mine is uh, Stephen Sanders Myers uh, at at Sanders Myers ST. So LinkedIn, Instagram, that'd be the two main ones. Well, that's amazing. Well, I appreciate you making time today. Brad, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. If you give value from the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. 
So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.